Institute podcast. This week we have Dr. James Richardson, author of Ramping Your Brand, and we're going to be talking about fan-driven businesses. We're going to explore what that topic actually means and how CPG companies can utilize this for their own growth. But first, let's talk about the FI Newscast, releasing every week at 12 p.m. Eastern on LinkedIn and on YouTube. It's hosted by Food Institute's own Susan Choi and covers the top news of the week, plus excellent interviews with some of the best minds in the food industry. So once again, at noon on Fridays Eastern Time, take a look for it on YouTube or the Food Institute LinkedIn. With that all out of the way, we welcome Dr. James Richardson to the show. For those who may not be acquainted, could you introduce yourself, Dr. Richardson? Well, thanks for having me again, Chris. Uh, I am the uh, author of Ramping Your Brand, owner of Premium Growth Solutions, which is a consultancy that does strategic planning for early stage consumer brands. And I think that's really going to set us up well today. Uh, we're going to be talking about fan-driven businesses and more specifically financial efficiency for those kinds of companies. And I think maybe at the start, we can just define what makes a great fan-driven business in your own words. What would you say is really like some of the primary characteristics you see when you have one of these fan-driven businesses? I would say what makes it really, what, the, what makes them strong is that a large percentage of the consumer base from very early on, upwards of 50% or more, uh, are moderate to heavy users. Or they become moderate to heavy users literally in a matter of weeks to months. And uh, when they when you have a business that starts off with that level of um, excited repeat purchase and repeat usage, um, you're able to make a lot of money in very defined geographies. <laughs> the key is finding the social networks where um, the first geeks can do most of your marketing through word of mouth for free. And I was thinking maybe you could share a couple of examples, maybe some of your favorite fan-driven businesses, just so we can give the audience a little bit of a table setting so we kind of have an idea of what types of businesses we're talking about here. Um, that's a good question. I think you know brands like Ithaca Hummus have been growing that way. Um, um you know, June Chai and Hard Kombucha grew that way in those early years, especially. I think it's doing similarly well today. Um, other brands that I know about that, you know, that I talk about in the book are Siggy's Yogurt absolutely grew that way. Um, you know, at very early, at very low distribution levels early on um, by getting, by letting the market sort of find the right people. So it, you know, the, the key to a fan driven business starts with design and getting that thing in front of folks who don't care what it costs, who then convert to heavy usage that really makes the thing financially powerful. Because if you can go the first five to seven years without having to, um, mess or lower structurally your uh, SRP with buyers, you know, you're building that enormous power and you're able you're able to avoid what is often the case for poorly designed things that get controlled by venture capitalists they'll just apply massive promoing to try to get the thing to move yeah and i think you know with all the chaos with silicon valley bank right now i think a lot of people are looking at venture capital you know maybe a little bit differently especially when they're designing their brands right now uh, one of the questions I did want to ask is some of the common threads that you see when you see some of these successful fan-driven food businesses. And you mentioned design. So when you say design, do you mean the product design, packaging design? Is it a combination of all these marketing assets kind of creating that brand? How do you see that kind of dynamic? 
I, I think initially it's actually really uh, the, the, all the design elements that go into the consumer experience. And one of those is absolutely the uh, front panel product symbolism. And uh, its corollary online would be your online product de uh, description language. You know, those are the primary marketing tools. The, the experience itself <laughs> of consuming the thing. Um, and then the immediate artifact symbolism, you know, and I think a lot of people, I mean, people understand, I think at one, at a high level that, yeah, I should think about what's on my package, <laughs> but it's <laughs> when you don't have a lot of money, it's actually something you really need to think hard about because it's, it's your cheapest advertising and it's your first advertising. Really? It's the first linguistic attempt at seducing the consumer. It's probably true across, you know, most consumers, they're going to maybe see an internet ad or something ahead of time, but typically product trials happening at the supermarket, right? When they're taking a look at these products. So I would agree. Typically it's, you know, the first opportunity for you to reach a consumer is going to be someplace on the product shelf. Um, at least in my experience, do you kind of agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Still. Uh, so I think, um, you have very little time to put together a symbolic argument that entices people to trial. And as I talk about in my book, you want to entice the right people. <laughs> and so you actually don't want to, in the early years, you don't want to actually make it. It's kind of like how I sell my professional services. You don't want to make it that easy to buy you. Right. I mean, you do and you don't, you want to actually filter out the wrong people and, and the wrong people are the people who aren't paying attention to what's on your package. Right. Um, they often will, you know, buy something in a category that's new because it's gluten free. Well, maybe gluten-free isn't really your positioning. Maybe it's just a ride-along attribute. Well, that's a worthless customer because when they decide that, you know, they don't care about your core attribute, they're just going to vanish. So I think there's a dance there. It's kind of like dating. You want to get the right people early on because then they'll become heavy users and that's where you get the financial efficiency. There is a time later on up the ramp, you know, when you're in the eight figures, usually deep into the eight figures where it makes sense to spend a lot of money on paid marketing. Um, to broaden that funnel that they call the funnel of trial in marketing. Um, but usually it's because the business is at a point where you now have a new positioning, which is much more diluted, right? Um, maybe you're switching from a geeky nutrition positioning that gets the business going with heavy users, but you actually then, then sweet switch to something more mainstream, like a satiety positioning with the same formula. Right. Because satiety is like, that's a Walmart kind of positioning. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. <laughs> all of the, the examples you brought up at the top, there all kind of have some health attribute or some kind of better than you or right. some better for you attribute, I should say. So I'm just wondering, you know, when you see, you know, some of these smaller brands trying to ramp things up, when you take a look at, you know, some of these companies as they start, you know, evolving, getting to a point where they start looking at, you know, making a, a bigger splash, you know, what can these established companies kind of do to ensure that original brand loyalty and fan driven dynamic doesn't get pushed out. And this is a long way of saying, I saw a recent LinkedIn post of yours. You were talking about McDonald's, Big Mac, you know, having that built in 33% pricing advantage due to the brand. So I'm kind of wondering that dynamic right there, you know, like when you are a mission driven brand or a smaller brand, but you start to scale, aren't you really like, at the point where you might be turning off your original consumers, you know, this group that was with you, these original, you know, 
product tasters, these original product adapters, do you feel like they get pushed away when companies start to take that larger step or is there a way to kind of include them as well? So I would, I would argue as a strategist that, that, um, they probably don't, if you're, if, if you have found a new, much larger audience with a different positioning, that early one doesn't matter anymore. They literally don't amount to anything in terms of the number of consumers compared to, you know, if you're talking like that early group, say in your hometown, that the 10 to 20,000 geeks, right. In a major Metro who got the business going, you, you know, that's nice, but they, <laughs> they will get lost in the ocean of 5 million consumers that run a half billion dollar business. So basically I would say, no, you don't care about them anymore. How you address that as a, as a marketer, <laughs> you can soft pedal that if you'd like, but strategically, no, you don't care about them at all. So let's take McDonald's because we can all relate. <laughs> Most people have forgotten that McDonald's started in LA as a place for um, high schoolers to go make out and drink milkshakes. Okay, it was a place to go in the 50s and do things your parents didn't want you to do. But you could tell them you were getting a burger. <laughs> right? It was, you know, basically young kids. Well, that's not going to scale. Right? What Ray Kroc figured out was the money was in families going there once a week and buying food for four to six people. So McDonald's became a family-driven brand by the early 70s. You know, and that positioning change was absolute strategic brilliance. <laughs> yeah, and dividends are still paying out. You could see yeah, modern and day, so right? It's not that the high schoolers aren't going to go there. They still go there. I mean, everybody goes there pretty much, except a tiny group of snobs and vegans, right? So there's, <laughs> everybody goes. <laughs> and part of the reason everybody goes is that once they got the business humming, they got that second large audience, families, that created an investable public company that now could become a true powerhouse and just it could then kind of ignore the consumer to some extent because they had a powerful brand and then they just focused on a real estate strategy which is the core of their their current success still is the fact that they're everywhere so that's why you go there not because not necessarily because you're passionate today because the food's okay and they're everywhere <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> and but that's a late stage win right you got to you got to do the hard work in the first 30 years in food service <laughs> yeah and definitely I, I love the point about you know the the major shift in customer they had towards the beginning of their journey right you know obviously most people know mcdonald's at this point as the massive global corporation that it is but the fact that it did kind of have to make a shift in who they were you know aiming to sell their burgers to is really an interesting point i think it fits in to the next question i have which is a more recent entrant but mr beast burger i don't think you can talk about fan driven businesses today without bringing this guy up um i know he's an entrant you know recent entrant into the food service space um, I'm just wondering, you know, when you take a look at this for a guy like this, do you find, you know, the social media slash YouTube personality, uh, you know, food service guy, do you think this is going to be a trend going forward? Do you think this is more of a one-off? And like, how does this tie into how fan-driven businesses are trying to expand? Because, you know, it's, at least at the beginning, it seems the early results for him seem to be pretty strong. So just wondering what you think about that whole dynamic. So I'm going to sound like I'm 93. Um, and I do actually know who Mr. Beast is because, because I have a middle schooler in my house. <laughs> um, but, um, <laughs> uh, I'm not, I know nothing about his food delivery thing. So I have like, no, I have nothing but questions about that, but maybe if I back up, 
I can just pose some questions for listeners to think about as they contemplate it, um, uh, as opposed to firm, firm opinions. <laughs> but there's a difference between building a, um, a fan-driven business through, an in, through a category-specific innovation in which people are drawn to that innovation because of what, it, what it's doing that's new in a known cultural category, like, I don't know, nutrition bars, kind and nutrition bars, right? So there's a difference between that process sociologically, but also from a business perspective and somebody with a following, okay, whether it's Mr. Beast or Kim Kardashian deciding that they want to partially monetize or create an additional revenue stream off of their essentially core business, which is a media driven media empire, right? And ads, um, simply because they know that they have enough power that people would like, you know, Mr. Beast kind of knows that people would like to eat what Mr. Beast eats, right? Um, and so to the extent that he's using that approach, uh, there isn't a lot of precedent for that creating sustainable growth businesses. Now, I'm not saying that Mr. Beast couldn't sell 10 to $20 million of burgers with a global platform as big as him, sure. Uh, when you're that big, you could probably pull that off in T-shirts and mugs and a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> um, so, yes, media empires, when they get that massive, can actually sell swag and product. But when if the if the food, Chris, is essentially coming off as a T-shirt that you can eat, if you're following my symbolic logic, it's not likely to be, have its own growth engine inside of itself, right? Because once you run out of fans who are that crazy, and you're talking about gonzo people. I really doubt it's the majority of Mr. Beast followers, right? I, I, mean, I don't have the data. He does, but I really find that hard to believe. But once you run out of those gonzos, how do you grow the group? Because it's all based on being a gonzo fan of Mr. Beast. Well, that's, you know, at the scale that he's at, that proportion's not probably growing anymore. Right? Um, like the ramp up would have been earlier. And I think it's an interesting dynamic, really, when you look at it. I know he's doing chocolate CPG as well, right? I think he's in Walmart, but just the whole well, dynamic. Mr. Beast, Mr. Beast should absolutely launch everything in Walmart, <laughs> but yeah. I just think it's kind of interesting because typically when you had these fan-driven businesses, maybe I'm taking a look at it more of a macro level, but you know, you often had some kind of celebrity endorsement uh, you know, that was exterior to the company and the, and the growth driver, but now that celebrity is the primary growth driver for the brand. He's the one that's designing it. And I think you can look across the spectrum. You see, you know, the guys from Breaking Bad introducing a tequila. I mean, it feels like over the last couple of years, everyone has introduced one. So, you know, I think, I guess my question is, if you are a smaller kind of brand that's trying to create this fan-driven, um, you know, experience with your CPG product, you know, how much more difficult is it to compete when you have these kind of viral marketing campaigns from people that already have these built-in massive fan bases, right? Yeah, so... So it, what you're, the dynamic you're talking about has worked in alcohol, and I, I, I don't want to digress with my cultural anthropology 1001 grad school lecture on why I think that is, because I don't think people care. Um, I've, I could write a book on it because it's fascinating to me, but I, I think it's a total exception to the rule, which is that in your average humdrum commodity category, like the, most of the categories in your kitchen, like it has nothing to do with what, why you're, how you're making a decision. So generally those experiments would tend to lead to a bunch of curiosity trial, which is actually super dangerous in a CPG business. It's a financial potentially 
I think Kim Kardashian is definitely a good example. I believe she partnered with Beyond Meat at some point. And yeah. I don't know how that worked out. So yeah, I mean, there's there's many examples of partnerships that don't work in food and beverage um, early on, uh, in part because it's, you know, the choice process is its own cultural animal, and you have to work within that. A true fan-driven consumer business is respecting the cultural dynamics of the category, innovating within those dynamics, um, being modern within the category, and attracting the people organically and naturally, essentially. Um, (laughs) uh, It's much tougher um, way to grow. I mean, my book makes no claim that, you know, exponential growth is like easy to design for, execute, manage, and, and contain, right? It's actually really difficult and it's super easy to screw it up. Um, you know, but there are business, I've, there's businesses I've worked with that tried to bring in celebrities really early and they do what, what you get is national awareness really fast. Does that really translate to repeat purchases though? Uh, nope, it does not. And it does not translate to the most important KPI is velocity growth. But what it does, it does save your ass if you made the mistake of going into 10,000 stores in the first 18 months. Right. Because because the celebrity, the celebrity, if they do it right, they could give you 20 percent awareness in like nine months. And, you know, I I uh, probably should talk more publicly about this. But the, the one reason why I rail against launching too early in Walmart is because most brands, most early stage brands don't have any national awareness. And they've never even measured it, even though it only costs about five hundred dollars on Polefish. <laughs> They've never even measured it. They have no idea how low it is. And if it's not 15 to 20%, you will not have max velocity at Walmart ever. Not, that's assuming you have a low price, which you also don't. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but awareness is huge. If you're going to be in like three national chains, people need to know the trademark and the front panel of the package and want, you know, so that's why I think I and other folks talk about bringing the celebs in maybe in specific lifestyle categories and beverages are one of them. Once you have a humming business and you actually need to go from a hundred million to 500 million, that's the, that's the time when they add, they can add enormous power to just flooding trial into the business. So yeah, it sounds more like a lifeline for a lot of early stage companies I think it's a Hail Mary that if it's a Hail Mary, if they're leaning on that, I wouldn't invest a penny in them myself. <laughs> so. No, I, I definitely understand. And I think taking a look at the other side here, you know, sometimes these founders become celebrities in and of themselves and kind of drive the business. And one thing I wanted to talk to you about a little bit is Miyoko's Creamery. Um, been the focus of some internet drama recently. I'm not sure if you saw it on LinkedIn, but she yes. seems to have been ousted. Uh, by the board over at that company. Um, we don't need to jump directly into, you know, Miyoko specifically, but just in general, when you have a founder like this that is synonymous with the brand mm. and that person is removed, you know, can a fan-driven business really survive there? To me, it's almost like, you know, the authenticity is gone. The person that was steering the ship is gone. You know, how am I supposed to trust that the brand is going to continue with the ideal that I originally connected with, if that's the case? Yeah, I think... I don't know if this will surprise you or listeners, but I actually, um, this is one where I would side probably with the investors on one element only, which is that I just don't think it matters if she's involved. 
It's interesting. Know, this, is, this is already a hundred million dollar business or close to it. Um, I believe they have growth challenges that are severe, um, which was what tends to lead to this kind of drama. Um, you know, it was very poorly handled. That's my public opinion. And it's typical, it's typical of arrogant venture capitalists, which is why I rail on the, I, I rail them against them constantly on the internet, just because it's true enough that someone needs to say, it. <laughs> so, um, and I think people need to be more careful who they get in bed with, uh, so to speak, cause it's very close to that. Um, and I feel bad for her, but I think the reality is this is, um, these kinds of businesses, when I say a fan driven business, it's, it literally is all about the fans, Chris. It's about their repeat purchase rate and their conversion to heavy usage. And that, believe it or not, these people are not following Miyoko Shinner, all of them. I think 10 years ago when she started at Expo West as a niche business, all of all of her customers were probably New Hope attendees, right? So it's just like, but we're way beyond that. They don't care. They're going to a store and buying symbolism on a package and they're happy with it. Then they don't care if she's there or not. And they probably still think she is, most of them. If you did a survey of the customer base, they probably still think she's in charge because they haven't read the news that you're referring to. We're kind of yeah. talking to ourselves a little bit. Might be a little inside baseball, if you will. But um, <laughs> but I do think it is, you know, I think it's an interesting point, and especially for smaller companies that are trying to, you know, balance a need for new capital, but maintaining control. You know, what if this happened five, 10 years ago? You know, in your opinion, do you think that this is something that could really derail them? Or do you really think that even at that earlier stage, you know, people don't really care so much about the founder. It's really about uh, that. That's a very insightful question. And the answer is, I think it actually matters more than if this had happened in the first couple of years, uh, when most of our heavy users essentially are people who go to new hope shows and some other vegans who all know each other. <laughs> yeah. Because the toxicity, uh, you know, those are people who actually probably do care who's running it. And they did want that authenticity. Um, but you know, one of the things we forget about the, I think even the, even a lot of vegan business people seem to forget is that the average vegan is not very sophisticated. I mean, That's they're, an not, tidbit, right? they're yeah. not some, they're not some post-grad intellectual fussing over the future of carbon sequestration and animal and PETA and all that's nonsense. They generally have a very Walmarty view of animal protection. And it's more like puppies and hugging and cuddle softness. And that that's their approach. That's why they're a vegan. I, I've interviewed these people. <laughs> that's why Morningstar Farms, a piece of, it's a processed brand, doesn't taste particularly great. You know, it's a half billion dollar business still. And I think there's a convenience aspect there too. You know, I, 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 I non-professionally interviewed one of my college roommates years ago about why he kept stuffing Morningstar Farm nuggets into his mouth. And, and this, is a, this was a Harvard undergrad, and his response was totally unsophisticated. He had the soft Disney Bambi cuddly teddy bear vegan approach, right? Like, don't hurt the animals. I regard that as a non-sophisticated opinion. <laughs> and I think that's probably worthwhile to keep in mind for most products is that, you know, when you're looking at, you know, most people are just stuck in their day to day. Right. And I think 
the inside baseball view when we look at it, right? It's, you know, we have all these attributes and this is why this product is going to save the world. But for most people, it's like, I'm just trying to get to my job and back and I want to make sure that I have some food for me and my family, right? So I do think that is something that gets a little lost on the inside here when you take a look at, you know, when you when you talk to any other consumer that's just buying the products, you know? That was one of the, when I did early in my career, when I did full-time consumer research for big companies, that was one of the most, that's why I got out of it after a few years. It's like, the answer, the, the consumer's perspective was always a hundred times simpler than the brand manager wanted it to, to make it because they lived in this pressure cooker in which, you know, the bureaucracy made you look at too many nuances that most of which didn't matter. Yeah, right. I would imagine it's basically taste, price, and maybe health. So, yeah, I mean, you can, ima- you can, you can imagine when you're, at, when you're doing consumer research and you're like a couple rungs down from the business leader and you want to tell them the story that is actually really simple. Um, but the person you're working for wants to tell a complex story because then their job looks like it was very, they did a good job. <laughs> you know, it's like, I got you this great report. You know, it's like suddenly we're just like the bureaucracy is just sort of feeding itself with ideas. It's all, it, I, I used to laugh because it was a lot like academia inside these big companies. Whereas what was really going on was, hey, um, maybe you go have a drink and relax because, you know, <laughs> the behavioral driver is really simple here. Yeah, the behavioral driver is really simple here. You know? <laughs> so I know we said we were going to do this conversation about the financial efficiency part. I think we spent more time on, you know, the founders and, you know, those those brands. But I'm wondering, you know, just from a top level, when you take a look at the financial efficiency of these fan-driven businesses, what can you tell us, you know, taking a look at these early stage companies? What should they be doing? What kind of KPI should they be looking at when they're trying to build out one of these CPG brands? You know, what's going to indicate that they're having success at the early stages and set, you know, and, and what kind of KPIs would indicate that they're going to have an opportunity to keep growing? Yeah, the one that's not in my book, I might as well share to help folks is that, you know, your month over month, same store velocity growth should be five to 10% every month. That's the gold standard that'll create exponential growth. Um, and that's a standard you can look at even with six months and see if it's happening. And most likely it's not if you just started. <laughs> so <laughs> hence, hence now, you know, and you can begin the iteration process. That's um, a very hard to achieve that. It just that's doesn't right. happen. There's a lot of emerging brand. I mean, when you get in, when you wade into the Nielsen and IRI data sets and go down the long tail to find these, these folks, the startups, um, as I used to do full time. And now I do with my clients categories, um, you know, what's interesting is that it's actually the, the illusion that I think teases, that, that teases people into overdistribution is that it's not actually uncommon at all, Chris, for you to go into an account and then have steady velocities. Like they, they, they go up to a certain not super impressive point and then they just hold flatline. Um, and th- what that does, and, and to... <laughs> To a classically trained general manager from a big company, that's actually their standard. That's their KPI for a product launch, is that the velocities hold at a minimum. It, it's the lowest possible standard you could set and not get fired. <laughs> but, you know, I think if you're trying to actually scale, you need a higher standard because you need better design. You know, and there are the problem when it just when the velocities just hold in those early accounts especially if the accounts are way up market is that you just, you have no clue um, 
if you'll ever be able to grow repeat purchase off this product. You have no data. Uh, and so it would make me very nervous if I were owning the business. What you want to have is that same store velocity growth. And that's all a matter of design and symbolism and getting that right. And also, if you have the time and budget doing out of store marketing that I push people to do for free with their own labor and passion to build the awareness inside the right social network. So you're driving, you know, the CrossFit geeks to blank store to get your nutrition bar. That's what you need. Um, cause you know, the event becomes your marketing theater. You've pre-sold them, right? Um, and that's an investment of time that a lot of people don't make. And then they wonder why their velocities aren't growing at their existing accounts. But the real temptation is that like venture capitalists come in they're like, Hey, the velocities are stable. Great. Next account. Let's add another one. And I would say, you haven't proven anything. <laughs> I'm not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Every time I get to talk to you, Dr. Richardson, I wish we had more time. I feel like this could go on for hours, but I do know that we want to make sure that we get a little bit of a talk about your book in there as well. So I'm just wondering, you know, we just shared one of the uh, items that's not in the book regarding, you know, the key velocity that you should be looking for with your sales. Could you give us a brief overview of the book in general? So anybody that's kind of interested in learning a little bit more might be able to uh, get a better idea of what the book is at, about and where they can get it. Absolutely. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. Uh, it's also available on Audible, which uh, surprisingly is a fairly popular format uh, for consumption busy by busy executives <laughs> um the uh the basic structure is four parts uh designing to command a premium where it's about a third of the book which teaches you kind of think like an anthropologist about how to put symbolism together and tie it to a formulation that's going to cause you to appear hyper-modern in your category. And that's really kind of the academic way to describe how this works. Um, part two talk, teaches you how to manage a small experiment. So you're containing it until you get that, that velocity growth I just talked about. Um, and then part three talks about fine-tuning the conversion playbook so that you, you actually use more sophisticated metrics to make sure that you're continually creating new heavy users as you add consumers. Because if you ever start running out of them, that's usually when you have to change your positioning. <laughs> um, and then the final part is how do you how do you accelerate to scale? How do you get to 100 million and beyond? And, and those are I talk about three fairly sophisticated approaches to doing that, and um, two of them are basically heresy at big companies. So the book is really about how to think differently about early stage brand management and growth. And you do have to use different KPIs and you have to use some of those metrics differently. And I will so. say this, if you are a early stage company looking to introduce a CPG product, you probably want to buy this book. If you're working at a legacy larger CPG company, you probably also want to read this book just to kind of get a new fresh kind of thinking on the development process in general, because, you know, if you haven't been able to tell already, Dr. Richardson definitely has an interesting take on things, definitely different. And, you know, like I said, every time I speak with you, definitely opens up my mind to different possibilities. So as always, really want to thank you for working with us today. Uh, and thank you again for joining us on the Food Institute podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. 
So that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Make sure you check out the FI newscast. Go to foodinstitute.com slash newsletters to sign up for our free daily and weekly email blasts. And as always, make sure you keep an eye on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or even foodinstitute.com for the latest Food Institute podcast episodes. We'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off. <laughs>